Before we read God's word, let's ask for his blessing upon the reading and preaching of that word. Oh Lord God, loving Heavenly Father, you are a God who not only dwells in pure light, but is pure light. And we are those whose minds are both small and finite and also darkened. And so, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you who are light would shine into our hearts, that we might be able to see and indeed grasp by faith more clearly the person and work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask these things in his name of you, God our Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to take the morning's reading from the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 9. Uh, I want to read from verse 1 to verse 8. Uh, the passage begins somewhat abruptly, the, the immediate background, which is not insignificant to what Jesus says here. The immediate background is he has just spoken to the crowd and to his disciples about his death and resurrection. It's on page 844 of the Pew Bibles. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they, were talk, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Praise God for his holy word. Uh, many of you, probably like myself, uh, enjoy biographies as a genre of literature. Uh, Jason on Friday night in the quickfire Q&A asked me, uh, what is your favorite biography? And without taking a breath, I said, Stalin, Court of the Red Tsar, Simon Seabag, Montefiore. Own a number of biographies of Stalin. And of course, uh, Stalin, as with other characters in history, when he's subject to numerous biographies, different biographies take different lines and different angles on him. Some biographers look at him in terms of the history of Marxism and communism. Some biographers might look at him in terms of his relationship to Lenin and the Russian Revolution. Some biographers look at him in terms of the immense and terrifying crimes that were perpetrated in his name. But one thing we know for certain is this, that each biographer has a vision of the picture of Stalin he wants to present. And therefore, he selects his material very carefully and he constructs the narrative around that material in order to present the person and the work of Stalin in a particular light. The Gospels function in a very similar way relative to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have four Gospels, four different biographies of Jesus, each of the Gospels is unified by the focal point, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And each of them is different because different material, different events are selected and put together in order for the writer 
to present different facets of the life and the work of Jesus Christ. And I want to reflect this morning on one particular incident, the incident of the transfiguration and how that fits in to the kind of biographies that the gospel writers are constructing. A little bit of background to my, my interest in this passage. Years ago when I was a pastor just outside Philadelphia, a local friend of mine, the Reformed Baptist pastor, would organize these sort of clergy breakfasts. And they were pretty open invitations. It wasn't just for Protestant and evangelical pastors. It was for clergy in the neighborhood. And I attended one of these breakfasts and uh, happened to find myself sitting next to and drinking coffee with one of the local Orthodox priests. Uh, and I asked him, you know, what, what would, you know, as an outsider, what do you see as a weakness of Protestantism? What would be the one thing that you would sort of push me on if you had an opportunity? And he said, I can never understand how little a role, small a role, the transfiguration plays in Protestantism. And I was struck by that, of course. Uh, immediately I went on the defensive and I sort of pushed back. But in the days after that conversation, I remember thinking, well, I've, I've heard a few sermons on the transfiguration, but they've always been part of a pastor preaching through the Gospels. Whereas I've heard lots of sermons on other events in Jesus' life that are not necessarily part of a series. I've heard sermons on his birth. I've heard sermons on his death and on his resurrection. Isn't it odd, I thought, that actually I think this Orthodox priest may have put his finger on something. One of the signal events in Jesus' life is kind of neglected in Protestantism. And I did a bit of uh, rummaging around to see, well, what, what does uh, it look like in, in Orthodoxy? And of course, Transfiguration, if you know anything about Eastern Orthodox icons, is a big theme in Orthodox iconography. So I dropped uh, another friend, uh, Orthodox friend, a note and said, you know, what should I read? Can you recommend any good sermons on the transfiguration? And he pointed me to a little collection, Light on the Mountain, which gathers together about a dozen sermons from the first four or five centuries of the church, looking at the transfiguration. And I read them and, pardon the fun, pardon, but I was sort of transfixed by them. I suddenly realized there were depths of riches in this single event that I'd never seen before. You should also note, of course, the transfiguration only occurs in three of the Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it isn't in the Gospel of John. Now, if an event occurs in three Gospels, well, if an event occurs in a Gospel, it's important. If it occurs in three Gospels, it's really, really important. It's a bit of a mystery to me as to, well, why isn't it in the Gospel of John? But I actually discovered that as I explored the transfiguration, came to understand the Gospel of John a little bit better as well. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at three aspects of the transfiguration that I hope will help us all to understand just why this event is so critically important in the life of Jesus Christ. I want to look at the context and the language that Mark uses about the transfiguration as showing that Jesus is somebody of significance. I want to look at the, the light of the transfiguration as revealing who Jesus is in terms of his person. 
And I want to look at the context. I want to look at the companions of the transfiguration who reveal who Jesus is in terms of his work. So first of all then, the context of the transfiguration is indicating that Jesus is somebody of significance. Gospels, of course, I've said are selective narratives. Some things occur in all four Gospels, feeding the 5,000. Other things occur in one, two, or three of the Gospels. I mentioned that this is uh, one of those events that occurs in the three so-called synoptic Gospels. What's interesting about the synoptic Gospels, of course, is one of the things is Mark is very concise. Mark is a very short Gospel. And although I wouldn't want to say that any Gospel writer wastes words, there's a sense in which in the Gospel of Mark, when he sticks in a detail, it has to be significant. Because Mark doesn't stick in a lot of details. He's moving very fast. If you read the Gospel of Mark, look for that little word, immediately. Turns up again and again in the Gospel of Mark. He's a, it's the speed Gospel. He's moving fast. He doesn't give extraneous details unless they're important to what he's saying. Think of uh, the, the uh, Mark chapter 5. The healing of the anonymous woman with the flow of blood and the raising of Jairus' daughter. We don't get the name of the woman, but we do get the name of Jairus. Why? Well, I suspect it's because Jairus is a big shot. And Mark knows that in subsequent years, when people read this story, they'll remember. Oh yeah, Jairus, he was the big shot at the local synagogue. I remember that happening. Wow, it was that guy who did it? That's significant. On the other hand, I suspect that the woman with the flow of blood is, you know, she's obviously a woman made in the image of God, but socially, she's a nobody. Nobody would remember her even if Mark stuck the name in. So he doesn't put the name in. Here as he talks about the transfiguration, he gives us a number of details. First of all, he gives us detail of timing. He says, after six days. That's interesting. He could have just said, later. Sometime after this. But he actually says, after six days. Why? Six days is a portentous period of time, isn't it? Creation in Genesis is described as taking place in six days. After six days, God rests. There is a completion after six days. As soon as you read the Gospel of Mark and six days pops up, your antennae should be tingling. He's given us that number. Not necessarily to draw a direct parallel with creation, but to alert us to the fact that what's about to happen is not just a run-of-the-mill event. It's something of great significance. We might say it's not just one miracle among many. It's a miracle that brings with it special meaning, special significance. Secondly, we're given the location. Up a mountain. You know, if you have time this afternoon, look up mountains in the Old Testament. A lot of amazing stuff happens at the top of mountains. Abraham and Isaac go up Mount Moriah where Abraham is told he's got to go and sacrifice his son. His only son, the son whom he loves. Think of Moses. Moses goes up Sinai to receive, to receive the law on behalf of the people. Moses, of course, will feature in this story. 
I actually think Abraham is alluded to in this story as well. And then, of course, Elijah features in this story. And Elijah's greatest, most famous moment occurs fairly near the beginning of his ministry, but is his great victory on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal. Big stuff happens on top of mountains. When Mark says he took his disciples up a mountain, something special is happening. Why a mountain special? We don't know. The text doesn't say. There's certainly a remoteness to them that perhaps you know, sends a thrill of excitement down the spine when you think of being remote in that way. There's a vulnerability. Some years ago, I was up a mountain in, in Britain. British mountains are not that high, of course, but they seem very high when a thunderstorm rolls across the top, as it did as I was at the top there, hiding in a crack in the rock, hoping not to be hit by lightning. You feel very vulnerable on the top of a mountain. Nowhere to hide. You're very exposed. There's an intimacy. If ever you've been on a, a hill walk with a friend or climbed up a mountain with a friend, there can be a peculiar intimacy when you reach the top. Not only have you gone through the journey together, but you're kind of isolated at the top and brought together in a peculiarly intimate way. Who knows? There have been all of those things playing into this. One thing we do know, though, is going up a mountain is special. Then we have the, the language used. We're told that Jesus was transfigured before them. And that's a word that does not occur very often in the New Testament. It's used by the other uh, gospel writers to refer to this incident. And it's used by Paul. Paul uses it in Romans 12 and, and uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. When he's talking about the dramatic, radical, moral transformation of the person who comes to Christ. Transformed in Christ. It's powerful language. It isn't just that Jesus' expression changes. It's almost as if his whole being is transformed before them at this particular point. The gospel writers use powerful language. Language that is only ever used to express very potent things in the New Testament. He undergoes a radical change of appearance before them. All of this, the location and the language, should alert us to what is happening here is of great significance. And this person is of great significance. Which then raises the question, of course... What significance? And I think that's where we come to the second thing that this passage uh, opens our eyes to. The light of the transfiguration reveals who Jesus is in terms of his person. First of all, there's the color, white. It's unusual in Palestine. If you've ever been to North Africa, the Near East, the Middle East, you generally don't see many people wandering around doing ordinary business dressed in white. Uh, always regarded, you know, even, even over here, you know, white pants strike me as very impractical. I would never wear a pair myself. Very impractical. Why? Because they get dirty very quickly. So it's odd that Jesus would suddenly be dressed in white. That's jarring, one would say. That's jarring. So what does it signify? Well, first of all, I think the light and the cloud 
point us back to the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory of God, which is all mixed up with notions of light and cloud. So there's something here going on that connects us to the glory of God in the Old Testament. And the Shekinah glory, of course, speaks of the authoritative and active presence of God with his people. That's kind of being brought to mind by this. Think about whiteness as well. There's purity here. The light, the white light speaks of purity. Like many ministers, I have the pleasure on occasion of marrying a couple. And in all the weddings I've ever done, I think I can honestly say that the bride has always entered the church dressed in white. And that's not coincidental. Because white is supposed to symbolize purity. That the woman comes to her wedding day pure. And that is symbolized by the whiteness of the dress she wears. That too, I think, is being pointed to here. The purity of Jesus is being underscored. If I was doing a Bible study on the sinlessness of Christ... I wouldn't hang the, sinless, sin, uh, the, sinful, uh, the sinlessness of Christ purely on this text, but it would certainly be one of the texts I would want to talk about and reflect upon if I was asked to speak upon it. And then think about light. The little book that uh, uh, my priest friend recommended to me, the title was Light on the Mountain. It's a great little book. The early church fathers were preoccupied with light. You look at some of the hymns that the early church fathers wrote. Often light is being used as a way of talking about God. The great Gregory of Nazianzus, 4th century father, fascinated by light. Why? Well, God is described as light, of course, in Scripture. And light is a wonderfully appropriate way of talking about God. Because we often talk about God as invisible. Well, light's kind of invisible, isn't it? I'm standing here now and I see you. I don't see light. I see you. You're illuminated by the light. I know the light's there because if I couldn't see you, if it was just blackness in front of me, I'd know that the lights were off and that the sun was behind an eclipse or something. Light We know its presence because of the way it illuminates other things. And the purer the light, the more intense the light, we might say, the harder it is to see. Think of the sun at noonday. You'd be a fool to stare at the sun at noonday. It would hurt your eyes. Hurt your eyes. It's why we wear sunglasses. Having grown up in uh, Western Europe, I often wear sunglasses almost year-round because America strikes me as a very bright country in terms of the light compared to that which my own eyes grew up with in the north. I'd say when I was working in Aberdeen, uh, if the clouds didn't clear in mid-December in Aberdeen, then at noon the street lights would still be on. It's much darker. The brighter the light, the harder it is to look at it. Both point 
to the fact that God is invisible. He cannot be seen. He's too glorious to be seen. And yet, here he is seen. In Christ, we're told, God is made visible through the human flesh. First letter of John. That which we have seen. Here the light can be seen because it radiates through the flesh. Think of uh, maybe you're a young person here today or maybe you're not so old that you've forgotten what it was like to be a young person. But you remember, you know, mum and dad send you to bed early and you're pretty gypped by that. So you want to read a book or you want to play or something, so you hide under the sheets and you put your uh, flashlight on. I was about to say torch. The English word, but torches tend to set things on fire. That would bring all kinds of inappropriate connotations into your mind. Put the flashlight on. And yet somehow mum and dad rumble that that's what you're up to. Because they can see the sheet glowing. They don't see the light, they see the glow of the sheet. Maybe you've done that thing in the dark where you, know, you stick the uh, flashlight. This is where it's important not to say torch. You can stick a flashlight in your mouth and you switch it on. And your cheeks glow red. You know the light's there because the cheeks glow red. Well, think of what's happening here. The transfiguration is revealing Jesus as God. One of the reasons why Jesus becomes flesh is this. We cannot gaze on the light of God directly. It is too infinite, too intense. But God accommodates himself, we might put it this way, to glow through the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that we are able to see it. And here, here the curtain is lifted just for a moment or two for a small handful of disciples so that they can see what's really going on. Notice that immediately before this, Jesus says, some of you here today will not die before you see the kingdom of God coming in glory. I think that's referring to the transfiguration. We get a glimpse here of the glorified flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ, glowing with his divinity. We get a glimpse here of what will be true and visible at the end of time. The curtain is lifted just momentarily for this inner circle of the inner circle before it's dropped again. The transfiguration reveals Jesus as God as the light shines through his flesh. And this is why John does not include the transfiguration. He doesn't need to. The Gospel of John is all about the transfiguration. He doesn't need the specific events. Because from the very beginning of the Gospel of John, it's about God as light shining through the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ into the darkened world. He doesn't need the transfiguration because his Christ, if you like, is the Christ of the transfiguration. Brings us then finally to the companions of the transfiguration as revealing who Jesus is in terms of his work. We know something huge is happening here because it's up a mountain. Then we find out, well, wow, it's about the revelation of God. Well, big deal. God's revealed himself. 
But then we get hints as to why God is manifesting himself in the flesh. First of all, the first uh, companions on the mountain to note, I think, Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets. We might say the Old Testament personified. The two greatest prophets of the Old Testament. There they are, talking to Jesus. The giver of the law. And the man who introduced the war against Baal within the people of God. The great reformer of Israel. Elijah. Jesus is talking to them. Jesus' significance has to be understood in the context of the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. Interesting enough, of course, both men were associated with mountains. I mentioned that before. Mount Sinai, Mount Carmel. Both were also transfigured. Moses comes down the mountain and he's kind of glowing because he'd been in the presence of God. Elijah is whipped up to heaven on the top of a mountain. Mountains feature heavily in their narratives too. Very appropriate that they would be Jesus' companions on the top of this very significant mountain, on this very significant day as well. Here, Jesus Christ is presented, I think, appears as the fulfillment of perfection of that to which Moses and Elijah point. So the first companions, Moses and Elijah. Second, we have the disciples. One of the fascinating things I, I discovered as I read the uh, uh, Light on the Mountain book, you know, it's always interesting when you read sermons from other cultures or from other times, because you realize that the questions you bring to the text are not necessarily the questions everybody else brings to the text. And it struck me, one of the things that the early church fathers did as they were wrestling with the transfiguration, one of the problems they identified and that they struggled with was this. Why are there only these three disciples with Jesus? You never crossed my mind. Why, why not all of them? And the answer they came up with was, this is too glorious a moment to allow Judas Iscariot to witness it. But if Jesus had just invited 11 of the 12 to join him, Judas would have known that his cover was blown. And the whole thing would have sort of, you know, the whole purpose of G Judas would have been thwarted. Fascinating. Text doesn't tell us that that's the case. But it just struck me as, that's interesting. Sounds very plausible to me. Not going to present it as an item of sort of gospel truth, but intriguing, isn't it? A reminder that, Different people, different cultures, different times. Ask different interesting questions about the text. Whatever the reason for bringing the subset of disciples in, the inner circle of the inner circle, so to speak, we can say that they're terrified. Verse 6 tells us they're terrified. And that terror is manifested in Peter's own rather bumbling and inept response uses the term rabbi, which is kind of a little bit casual, possibly, as a way of referring to Jesus at this point. And he makes this inept suggestion about, can we put up some tents for you? Probably connected to the Feast of Booths, ancient Israelite festival that celebrated the wilderness wanderings. It would seem that if you know, they did that, Peter would have missed something important. He'd have missed the fact that you know, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, they're not on the same level. Something's happening here that is fulfilling 
what those other two guys pointed to. And it's not going to be fulfilled in quite the same way as it was in the Old Testament. We might also add that the scheme would have deflected Jesus from the cross. Peter fails to grasp, it seems, that the glory he's witnessing on that mountain that day is just a foretaste of what can only be delivered by Jesus going to the cross in Jerusalem. So the disciples then, I think, point to the fact that something's being fulfilled here, but it is not the fulfillment. There is more to come. And that brings us to the third figure, the third companion on the mountain that day, the Father. The Father speaks, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. Reminiscent, of course, of the baptism. The Father says a very similar thing at the baptism. And if I was preaching on Mark chapter 1 today, I would go to the same Old Testament text that I'm about to go to now. I think this is language used by the Father that is consciously reminiscent of language used by God in Genesis 22. I mentioned that Abraham reappears in this narrative. He's hinted at this. Here is where it is. Genesis 22, God says to Abraham several times, refers to Abraham's beloved son. Take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, to a place where I will show you, and there sacrifice him to me. God the Father here draws on the language of Genesis 22. If you're Jewish that day, if you're Peter, James, or John, you wouldn't miss that connection. You would immediately understand something of what's going on. Jesus' baptism is being reaffirmed and his ministry is being set in the context of the mystery of Genesis 22. Must be probably 15 years ago now, uh, my wife and I uh, went to the bar mitzvah of the son of some very good Jewish friends we had in Philadelphia. Uh, And the, the text that day for the bar mitzvah was Genesis 22. It's kind of eerie hearing it read in Hebrew. And then the rabbi got up and preached on it. It's one of my favorite texts because it's one of the, you know, it's one of the most impossible to understand in many ways in, in the Old Testament, all that's going on there. And I was thinking to myself, this is fascinating. I wonder where the rabbi is going to go with this. I wonder how he will conclude. Well, he concluded with a question. And the question was this. What kind of a God asks a man... To sacrifice his son, his only son, the son whom he loves. And I'm a relatively polite Englishman, so I didn't stand up and respond to the answer, give the answer to his question. But of course, in my mind, I was thinking the kind of God who ultimately doesn't demand that of Abraham, but demands it of himself. That, I think, is what's being pointed to here. This text is speaking of the coming sacrifice. Peter, James, and John are being reminded there's a sacrifice to come. You need to think of Genesis 22 at this point. And notice too, God the Father says, listen to him. That's the kind of thing God says about the prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus here is being granted a prophetic authority by the Father. He is the supreme 
prophet. So we see then this passage. First of all, we're alerted to something very, very important happening here. All the miracles are important, but this isn't just another healing or another exorcism. I would put the transfiguration alongside the conception, the nativity of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus, the death and the resurrection of Jesus as one of those major markers that kind of carry the story forward in a rather dramatic way. I had to fill in and teach a course on the doctrine of Christ uh, at Grove a couple of years ago, and I did it framing it around the big things in Jesus' life, of which the transfiguration was one, a hook, on which one could place a whole lot of doctrine about Christ. Points us to his person. His light manifest, his God manifest in the flesh. The purpose of Jesus becoming flesh wasn't just so that he could die on the cross. It was so that the flesh could become the medium through which God might reveal himself to us as light. And then there's the work, definitely pointing here both to the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the sacrifice. That's all in this passage. So what are the applications we might draw from this briefly as we conclude? First of all, there's a doctrinal lesson. You want evidence that Jesus is God? This is the passage to go to. If you want to talk about the necessity of Christ's suffering, this is one of the passages to go to. If you want to talk about the authority of Jesus' teaching as the great fulfillment of the prophets, well, you go to Hebrews 1, of course, but you go to this passage as well. All that doctrine is contained herein. Secondly, I think you should be, if you're, at least if you're a Christian here, immensely encouraged by this passage. What is Jesus doing? What is God doing in this passage? He's lifting the veil to allow the disciples to know that what they see as outward reality is not true reality in its full depth. They see this humble Jewish, poor Jewish peasant, son of a carpenter. That's what they see. But in this moment, they see who he really is. Just for a brief moment of time. We live in an age, don't we, where you know, the outward things often raise serious questions in our experience as to whether God is sovereign. You can look at world events and wonder, you know, is God still in control? Everything seems so chaotic. But you don't need to look at world events for that. You can look at your own lives. All of us at some point, maybe some of you here today, I don't know many of you, maybe some of you here today are facing chaos in your own lives. An illness that has struck a loved one over which you have no control. Or somebody has done something to you. You don't know why, but you have no control over it. Maybe you've lost your job. You don't know why. And you're worried about the future. These are hard things to face. What this passage does, it gives us no easy answers for the next 24, 48 hours, week, month, year, whatever. But what this passage does is remind us that outward reality prior to the return of Christ is not an accurate guide to real, deep reality. Christ here may present as a humble son of a carpenter, but he is God manifest in the flesh. 
That is a reminder to the disciples that with all of the terror and trauma that is about to enter their lives, they should not judge by outward appearances, but by what and who Christ is in himself. It's Paul's lesson in many ways in First and Second Corinthians. It's also a warning. If you're not a Christian, of course, yeah. Christianity may look weak. Christ may look weak here and now. But there will come a time when Christ will not only be glorious, as he always has been, but he will be unequivocally seen to be glorious as well. That is good news for those who trust him by faith and bad news for those who defy him. And then finally, I think we get a glimpse here into heaven itself. You often wonder, what is heaven like? If you look at pop culture, heaven looks something like being dressed in white, sitting on a cloud and playing a harp. Very unlikely that that is the case. That would be a very tedious eternity, I would imagine. What does heaven look like? Well, have you ever read Dante's Divine Comedy, the last book? The last book, the Paradiso, the Paradise, when Dante is reflecting upon the nature of heaven, culminates in the last cantos in him trying to put into words this glorious vision that he thinks heaven will be, trying to put into words what he would call the beatific vision, the blessed vision, the vision of the blessed. Well, what is the vision of the blessed? I think we're given a strong hint as to what it is here in the passage. It will be gazing on the resurrected humanity of Christ through which the light of God's glory shines. When we are resurrected, when we enter heaven, we do not cease to be finite. Our sin will finally be put away. We will be perfected, but we will not cease to be finite creatures. And that means... It will not cease to be the case that we need God to accommodate himself to our capacity as finite creatures. We will never know God as he is in himself because we will always be finite. But we will know God as glorious as God has accommodated that glory to our capacity. And what does that look like? It looks like the transfiguration. It looks like the glorious light of the invisible God shining through the flesh of Christ and making God manifestly visible in that flesh. Praise God for the transfiguration. For it is indeed, I think, one of the most important events recounted in the Gospels. Let us pray. Oh Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that though you are a God who dwells in inapproachable light, yet you have indeed condescended in your grace and mercy, not only to deal with our sin, but to reveal yourself in a gentle, gracious and pure form through the fragile flesh of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, that as we gaze upon that flesh now by faith, so you might keep us safe for that day when we will one day gaze upon it by sight. For we pray this in his name. Amen.